electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Monday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Deirdre Bosa. Today, Tesla's tear higher with shares back above 1,000 a share and reports of a potential stock split. We've got Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas to break down the space. Plus, the slap felt round the world, what Apple's best picture win could mean for streamers and the stock and social media's growing role. And finally, cybersecurity companies and risks in focus with the conflict in Ukraine. We will talk outlook for the sector with the CEO of Cloudflare this hour, Dee. First, breaking news from Washington. Crossing right now, President Biden unveiling his budget proposal for 2023. And Elon Moyes got those details for us. Elon. Good morning, Deirdre. President Biden's budget includes $2.5 trillion in new taxes over the decade targeted at corporations and the wealthy. His plan would raise the corporate tax rate to 28 percent, tighten international tax rules, repeal key tax breaks for the oil and gas industry, increase the top individual rate to 39.6 percent, close the carried interest loophole and end the benefit for like-kind exchanges. There's also, of course, a new 20% minimum tax on those worth $100 million or more that covers both regular income and unrealized gains. Now, that revenue will help pay for investments in K-12 education and college affordability, public health, housing, and combating crime. It also allows the administration to reduce the deficit by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. But the White House is also setting money aside for another go at a Democrat's only tax and spending bill that would focus on cutting costs for households and expanding the productive capacity of the economy. Now, that could be funded with separate proposals like taxing stock buybacks or a millionaire surtax that passed the House last year. Now, if the White House budget were to pass, the administration estimates GDP would grow 7.6 percent this year and 5 percent next year before settling around 4 percent for the rest of the decade. The unemployment rate would dip to 3.6 percent next year and hover around 3.8 percent in the long run. The White House also projected inflation would end up at just 4.7 percent this year, then moderate to 2.3 percent in the following years. Now, if that sounds kind of rosy, the administration did caution that the forecast was made in the fall before the crisis in Ukraine. Officials acknowledge that is likely to keep energy and food prices higher for longer. But overall, guys, the White House said that fiscal responsibility is one of the key priorities in their budget. Back to you. 
All right. A lot of moving pieces there, Elon. We're going to count on you to keep us honest. That's our Elon Moy in Washington. Meantime, we'll start today's feed with Tesla. Shares, as you know by now, up 35% in just two weeks. And the news today, the company is proposing a five-for-one split. COVID lockdowns in China are pausing production at the company's Shanghai factory for at least four days. Elon Musk tweets he now has COVID. And on top of that, reporting that Musk is at war with the SEC and NHTSA. A racial discrimination lawsuit is moving forward against the company on behalf of more than 4,000 current and former employees. <laughs> is that all enough to keep track of? Let's bring in Adam Jonas, Morgan Stanley's head of global auto research. Adam, welcome back. Always good to check in with you. Yeah. Hey, Carl, thanks for having us. Your, your overall point in your writings last few weeks has been Tesla's a must own, but you continue to warn about dealers, especially who you think are beginning to tamper with the consumer's ability to keep up with prices. How can both things be true? Well, it's interesting when when Elon Musk and Tesla went state by state to try to get the ability to go direct to consumer. At the time, uh, a lot of folks, including a lot of dealers, thought Tesla, they're just, you know, a fly. They'll go away over time. You'll see. They didn't count on this being a trillion dollar company and one of the most deterministic tech firms in the world. So now we have a little problem where there's two two classes of car companies that can go direct where, you know, Tesla and some of the new startups can stack retail and have a more frictionless experience, whereas the legacy folks are kind of prevented from doing so by 70-year-old dealer franchise laws. So, Carl, I, I wouldn't rule out this might have to go to the Supreme Court at some point to be able to harmonize this or have some kind of way to move forward, because one of the reasons why Tesla is such a profitable car company isn't because their cars themselves are so profitable, but because they capture that downstream pricing that it gets leaked to the dealers with a traditional model. Right. And do they give anything up in return in the way of service or convenience sure. or just the accessibility of a dealer network? Listen, the first I want to acknowledge that dealers have the laws on their side, so they're just operating, you know, in a legal way, in a way that's been constructed. Um, the, the downside for Tesla going direct historically was they had to make those investments, the stores, the service centers, and, and particularly in the early days, and even now, there have been some problems. You know, Tesla's electric cars tend to not have many things that break, but when they do, you might have to wait a while, schedule your appoint, appointment. You know, that's where some of the flaws in the system have come out. But over time, Tesla has been able to work through that, and I think we could agree on this program. They have the capital and the capability to continue to address mm -hmm. those, those issues. It's the, it's, it's, there, there's no going back in terms of a franchise. Yeah, so I wonder, Adam, you said that this could go all the way to the Supreme Court as sort of the legacy players look at this model and all of the benefits that you just laid out. Do you think that that's something we're going to hear more about? How does that happen? When does it happen? Uh, it's a very tricky situation. I think the, the traditional car companies are trying to uh, experiment and to um, look at tweaks to the existing franchise contracts while still, of course, obeying the laws um, and to try to find ways to have a new contract that the dealers could opt into as they roll out new digital models, connected cars, electric cars. Uh, but in our opinion at Morgan Stanley, we think that the legacy car companies like a Ford and GM, they're making that sound like it's going to be a little too easy. It'll just be like no problem. It's not it's not going to be easy. OK, this is yeah. going to take many years. And I right. think you're going to you're going to run into state by state level issues with the NADA. So some Darwinian forces might have to come into play here as the 
uh, retail uh, auto distribution model gets recasted. That's a fascinating discussion, Adam. Um, I also do want to ask you, though, about the um, Master Plan 3 and specifically about Tesla's battery business. Um, the in-house battery seen as a potential game changer in the EV industry at large. But, of course, there's massive challenges in scaling that 4680 cell. Do you think that Musk ultimately pulls it off? And if he does, what does that mean for Tesla? Is that being priced into your target at the moment? Well, if you don't mind, let me flip the question back to you. Can you think of any other tech firm or any firm in the world that has the capability and the scale to re-architect and industrialize a supply chain, which is currently broken? I mean, the, the current battery supply chain is, is not secure. It relies on materials that are not sustainable and parts of the world that are contested and not secure, to say the least. If it's not Elon, who else is going to do it? Yeah, it's a good question, Adam. Look at what they did with chips, and they've been able to uh, to maintain production amid the supply chain crisis better than their rivals. Over to John. He has a question. Yeah, Adam. Um, Tesla stock morning. Uh, it, it's all over the place, right? Like it's it's up almost eight percent as we speak in this market. And so I, I'm wondering, when you're valuing Tesla, or you're an investor trying to figure out where do you get in, or where do you get more. How do you justify buying it at over a thousand bucks a share in a rising interest rate environment where we've seen over the last few months what, you know, whether it's geopolitical concerns or concerns about what the Fed is going to do have an impact on stocks like Tesla? Uh, John, it's a great question. It's a frustrating topic for many of our clients, frankly. Uh, I'd say, uh, tragically, uh, events of the past month or so is moving the market and the investor debate in many ways towards where Tesla has capability, right? Um, they uh, traditionally, let's say, uh, electric car company, but going forward, and we think some of the ingredients of Master Plan 3 will be, we're going to now industrialize the supply chain all the way up to the mining operation to make it renewable, sustainable, secure, Energy security equals national security. And then downstream, thinking of the car as part of a mobile grid, Internet of power, Internet of energy, whatever you want to call it. So the parts of the Tesla portfolio, including stationary storage that historically didn't get a lot of attention, are going to get an unbelievable amount of attention going forward. So, John, look, it's frustrating because people are still solving for car, but you have EV infrastructure, power, uh, sustainable supply chain. Elon and Tesla, they're the architects of the renewable infrastructure. And that, I think, is, is what's going to maybe change the definition of the TAM in a way that, mm. that investors didn't contemplate before. Okay. So what else does yep. Elon need to do with the stock where it is right now, whether right. it's M&A, whether it's financial structure, to, to make the most of this so that investors can feel all the more confident uh, in his ability to take the, uh, the value of the company up from here. So, John, Tesla, we say at, at Morgan Stanley, they've had the Model T moment, right? The Model 3, the Model Y. That was the proof of concept at a form factor that could scale to a degree, right? Um, but what they, they have not had the moving assembly line moment yet, right? So when the Model T came out in 1908, John, the average price of a car was 80 grand in today's dollars. The Model T moved that to 25,000. But it wasn't until 1913 when the moving assembly line, which was a manufacturing innovation, right, John, that got the price of a car eventually down to 3000 bucks a car in today's 
dollars. So not 80 grand, but three. So I think that the Tesla that we're going to see that will be unveiled over the next year or so, and perhaps hints of it in the plan three, will be we're now going to industrialize at very, very high scale, five to 10 plants, making one to two million units each and making cars and architecting the fuselage of the car and the battery and the ecosystem in a way that had not been conceived before. The risk to other parties, John, is that if you're in the battery business or the EV market business right now, you might be doing obsolete technology and obsolete IP. It, time will tell, but maybe it's the, maybe the ones that are waiting and watching with Elon and haven't dived in yet. Maybe, maybe that second mover advantage might be on display. Wow. Fascinating time. Uh, finally- Finally, Adam, the, the white space between your, your enthusiasm for Tesla and your skepticism of GM Ford has been notable for a while. But of the two, um, and obviously it's going to be difficult given the challenges you've outlined, but which has the better chance of closing that space? I think they both, both Ford and GM bring something to bear. I really admire what Jim Farley is doing in terms of going, uh, re, rethinking the dealer and the uh, distribution pipeline. And you know, experimenting and trying some things like the Mach-E and the Lightning. We think they'll struggle to make these products, and they're probably working on different iterations right now, but kind of keeping the irons in the fire. Uh, what Mary, Barra, and GM have done, trying to go vertically integrated uh, earlier and to try to secure that supply chain in the United States, also very admirable. I'm not at liberty to say which one's going to, you know, I could come up with scenarios where they both are succeed or they both don't succeed. I just worry that that combination of internal combustion profits, which are very, very high and going to be around for many years to come, that, that the cost of that capital is extremely high and it's being invested into technology that I, I unfortunately think might prove to be obsolete over time. Doesn't mean that they can't survive and be, and be, and be a part of the future, but I, I think our message to investors is you have to take your medicine and, and kind of get that Tesla vaccine uh, in your portfolio to be able to take risks <laughs> elsewhere. Right. Uh, Adam, uh, we love getting your guidance. And by the way, uh, just the color and entertainment factor of your notes lately has been stellar. <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, really, inter- I don't know if that's a compliment, but thanks for having us. It is. It Take is. Care. Thanks, Adam. We- we'll see you soon. We didn't get a chart, though, this time. One benefit of seeing Adam uh, from his work-from-home studio. Meanwhile, are raising, rising interest rates really a risk for tech or another positive sign for the bulls? Plus, Bitcoin crossing back above 47K. Tech Check is just getting started. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. 
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Let's get a gut check on chip stocks. Goldman slashing estimates on several names concerned about macro headwinds and normalizing demand, saying they see limited potential upside in Corvo, Teradyne, and microchip technology, downgrading all three from buy to neutral, cutting the price target on AMD from 159 down to 127 as well, but maintaining a buy rating on AMD. At the same time, they see Broadcom, Analog Devices, and Marvell as potential outperformers bullish on pricing power, cash flows, and capital returns, among other factors. Dee. Turning to markets and the Nasdaq currently outperforming the other major indexes, our next guest says that while tech stocks have been weak in the current period, they actually do quite well relative to the market before and after rates start to rise quickly. So could a big rebound be ahead? Here to discuss Bespoke Investment Group co-founder Paul Hickey. Paul, good morning. It's great to have you. Hey, Deirdre. How are you? I'm well. So history tells us that tech stocks have been quite resilient, but we've never lived through a pandemic. And I'm not sure if we've ever seen valuations rise as quickly as they did in, what, a year and a half? Could this time be different? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, John in the last segment with Jonas had a good question. Um, you know, how can Tesla be doing so well uh, in this rising rate environment? Um, but when you look back historically, tech, which is considered, you know, one of the growthiest sectors in the market, uh, everyone thinks, OK, Rising interest rates are going to be negative for the sector. But when you look back historically, during periods, uh, you just take the long-term treasury ETF, TLT. When it's declined, uh, had sharp declines like it's had recently, and you look back at those prior periods and look at how the market has done, and then you look at how tech has done, uh, the market has had mixed returns, but tech has actually outperformed. Um, mm -hmm. It out actually outperformed the S&P 500 during every one of those prior periods that we looked at. This most recent period was actually the first period where we saw tech underperform the S&P 500 as interest rates were rising sharply. Um, this is going back to 2002. So uh, it's 20 years of, uh, of history we're looking at, and uh, tech had a consistent record of outperforming during that period and then going forward as well. So uh, mm. six and 12 months later, uh, the sector was higher every time and outperformed uh, the S&P 500 all but once. And the one time it un underperformed, it just underperformed by about 200 basis points. So I, I think the whole idea that rising rates are going to be negative for uh, tech stocks in, and there's no debate about it uh, is a little bit unfounded. And one of the things we, we think about is, you know, I, I think about uh, – you know, one of John's on the other hand comments is, uh, or segments is that, <laughs> well, tech has, you know, the highest growth rate. So their, fut their future cash flows are discounted higher by higher interest rates. They also have, the sector is, also has one of the lowest debt levels uh, versus other sectors. So as rising interest rates, the debt burden, they're less impacted by that than some of the more capital intensive sectors. 
Paul, I love that you're using Johnza. On the other hand, we have that graphic ready in case anyone says it. Um, okay. On the other hand, um, then we've seen so many companies go public over the last few years at earlier and earlier stages because of the whole SPAC phenomena. What should investors be worried about then? As you say, history um, has, has been quite consistent. But have we seen the quality of companies that we have now, sort of this mixture in the market, such unprofitable companies at these early stages? Well, so, I mean, there's definitely within tech overall, there's a lot of low quality companies. There's no debating that. So we're focusing more on, say, the large cap space and, uh, you know, more established companies. So to to your point, uh, within the tech sector, the tech traditionally trades at a higher premium, higher valuation than the overall market. And during this period, it definitely has a richer valuation relative to the market and relative to those prior periods. So there is, I think, some of the weakness, rather than rising interest rates, is more mean reversion uh, for the sector overall. And we're, we're seeing some of that play out. But within the mid-cap and, and small-cap space, the tech sector is cheaper now than it was going into COVID. Uh, it's only in the large-cap uh, space where you see uh, loftier valuations. So our overall strategy is, rather than just you know look at the sector overall, looking at individual companies, where we're going to see stocks that are trading cheaper now versus where they were heading into COVID. Uh, Paul, good morning. First of all, thanks for the shout out. Uh, Second, I I wanted to ask you about exactly what you just mentioned, which is the mid and small caps. I mean, the Russell 2000 is back at the levels of the beginning of 2021. But my sense is that small cap tech is doing a lot worse than that, uh, as you mentioned. So is that where people should be looking, perhaps? Investors should be looking for opportunity in the stocks that still have decent fundamentals but are behaving as if, um, you know, their story has fallen apart, perhaps even versus a a big popular company like Tesla? Yeah, so you're exactly right. So within the small cap space, there's um, the, the tech stocks have been hit hard. And in the Russell 2000 versus the S&P 600, uh, there's a little bit of a difference there because there's more or less profitable companies in the Russell 2000. So within the S&P 600, which tends to be have more companies with established profits, the valuations there are much cheaper now than they were heading into 2020. Uh, you, you couldn't even find in the large cap space, though. You look at a stock like PayPal, which at the beginning of 2020 was trading at over 50 times earnings. And it's trading for less than 25 times current year earnings. Uh, so I, I think you've seen that stock really uh, come in a lot. It's lost about two-thirds of its value, uh, become washed out. And I think right now you're looking at much more reasonable levels than you were, say, a year ago. Uh, so, so even in the large cap space, you, you see mm-hmm. uh, stocks and individual examples of things that have become cheaper. Another one, you mentioned it leading into this, there was an upgrade our research piece on the semis, Broadcom is a stock that uh, is cheaper now than it was uh, heading into the pandemic. Uh, their business has been great. The last seven quarters, they've reported earnings triple plays, which are they beat earnings, they beat revenues, and they raise guidance. So the business has been doing great. They're well diversified within the semiconductor space, serving cloud, telecom, enterprise, and mobile. And also, they also pay 2.7% yield. So they have a very safe dividend and a, a, a record of raising that payout. So that's an attractive stock as well. Paul Hickey, thanks so much for your insights. Talk to you, Sam. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. 
Meanwhile, Apple's become the first streamer to win Best Picture at the Oscars yesterday, as you know. Why some are calling it a mic drop moment for the space. Stay with us. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine heightens tensions and cybersecurity firms like Okta are hit by ransomware attacks, uh, companies like Cloudflare are on high alert, launching initiatives to help public and private entities protect themselves. Joining us now on the state of cybersecurity, Cloudflare CEO and co-founder Matthew Prince. Uh, Matthew, good morning. Um, I'd actually like to start on the state of M&A. You bought, uh, you guys bought Area One Security uh, about a month ago that, that deals in email uh, and phishing security, about $162 million, I believe. What can you tell us about the M&A environment right now, companies' willingness to sell and perhaps uh, take stock as part of the payment? Yeah, you know, I think that at Cloudflare, we've we've always really believed in internal development uh, first and foremost. So our hurdle rate for any M and A is is extremely high. With Area One, we found uh, a team that we really respected. They were a vendor that we were using ourselves, uh, someone who we knew could help close one of the the key uh, uh, holes in any organization's um, security portfolio. So we're excited to have them on board. I think our Hurdle rate for M&A continues to be uh, extremely high, uh, and and we are uh, going to be very selective about what we use. But I think that when we find great teams and great technologies uh, that are nice tuck-ins to our existing customer base, it's a great way to continue to expand our portfolio. And what, what's the lesson of the lapsus cyber attacks, and in in what way is that shifting the ask? Uh, from clients on either what they're concerned about or uh, what you're messaging about how they need to be protected? You know, I think that the lapsus attacks are just another iteration that shows how a small group of individuals, whether that's a group at a nation state or in this case, what appear to be a a series of teenagers, can do enormous amounts of harm uh, to organizations. In this case, they were literally paying insiders within an organization in order to take over uh, client information and other and other things. What, what I think that highlights is how important it is to have defense in depth in any security. You don't want to rely on any one thing. The metaphor that I like to use is, it's like once upon a time we built ships without bulkheads, and the problem was that if there was any hole anywhere in the ship, then the ship sank. 
Uh, today, modern ships are built with bulkheads, and a modern organization's security should have the, the modern equivalent, which is a series of bulkheads that prevent any one individual, any one vendor, any one security vulnerability from taking down your entire organization. Matthew, last week we did see law enforcement uh, disclose uh, some earlier investigations um, about potential attempts to at least move into the energy grid. Does that act as, as a deterrent when law enforcement is willing to publicly say we knew who you were and what you were trying to do? You know, I think that any, any activity where we can identify who the bad guys and who the hackers are that are trying to attack parts of our infrastructure is part of an overall strategy. But what I think is critical is that we make sure that those energy companies, those companies in the in the water space, hospitals, make sure that they are as secure as possible, which is why we, along with CrowdStrike and Ping Identity, launched the Critical Infrastructure Defense Project. And, I, and I, what we're doing is providing our services and the best of breed technology to those organizations to make sure that they have all the security that's there. But I applaud law enforcement going after hackers. Oftentimes they're overseas and outside of the reach mm -hmm. of, uh, of law enforcement, but making it harder for them to do their business uh, is good for us as a society and good for every organization out there. Right. So, Matthew, the virtual fences are up. You have more cooperation between the public and private spheres. And I, I don't mean this question sort of in a bad way, but I wonder, why do you think we haven't seen a concerted attack yet from Russian hackers? Have their capabilities, do you think, been overstated? Are we better prepared? Are they too busy playing defense to play offense? What's the reason behind that, do you think? I don't think it's a bad question at all. In fact, I think that's the question that all of us are asking ourselves, because the I think one of the biggest surprises of the last month has been that while our shields are up, and I think it is absolutely appropriate for us to be um, at a heightened level of security, the massive attacks that I think we expected haven't come so far. What we don't know yet is if that's the quiet before the storm uh, or, or if, if, if for whatever reason uh, cyber attacks aren't part of it. What we do know is that Russian hackers are very talented, uh, that they are good at launching cyber attacks, and that this is a heightened level of, of security. So our team is working around the clock with our clients to make sure that they're secure, to watch for anything that's going on. We're watching what's going on inside of Ukraine, inside of Belarus, inside of Russia, making sure that we can stop attacks that come out of any of those regions or target any region around the world. And so I think it's, it's the million dollar question right now. Why haven't there been more cyber attacks? But I don't think that that means that we're out of the woods. Indeed. Matthew, thank you. Matthew Prince of Cloudflare. When we come back, a multi-billion dollar bet that remote work is here to stay. We're going to talk about that after the break. Welcome back. Let's get a gut check on HP Inc. announcing today they're acquiring uh, communications equipment company Poly for $1.7 billion. This is arguably a bet on hybrid work sticking around. Poly makes hardware for video conferencing, headsets, conference phones. Although a lot of that tech is levered to offices, the stock is up almost 50% right now, but it actually peaked way back in 2018, hasn't come close to hitting those levels since. You can take a look at some hardware stocks, uh, Logitech, Sonos. Uh, let's see, Logitech is about flat. That's a consumer name, large market cap. Sonos a bit smaller, up 13%. Perhaps 
in sympathy. Roku, I don't know if you call that hardware exactly, Carl, but, you know, perhaps some sense of the M&A that might happen here. I think of Poly as being sort of a, a, a corporate purchase play, and it's interesting to think what might happen in that space, I guess, given uh, Logitech is coming at it from the consumer side, Poly from the corporate side. Yep. It was interesting to talk uh, with Enrique about uh, about those very dynamics, and we'll see how much of it reverses or normalizes. Speaking of remote work, check out Zoom, up 20% since mid-March amid the rebound in those growth names. It's more than 70% off the 52-week high, though, as you know, a long way to go to those pandemic highs. As we're at session lows on a pretty weak two-year note auction, we're back in a moment. The volatility in the market and tech in particular has led to a change in investing behavior. CNBC contributor Gunjan Banerjee of The Wall Street Journal reporting that market swings have triggered a stampede into tech-heavy exotic products as the riskiest, costliest way to invest is becoming the most popular. Gunjan joins us now to discuss that trend and its implications. Good morning to you. Uh, one of the most actively traded products is the TQQ. It's designed to triple the daily rally of the NASDAQ 100. So how are retail investors using it, Gunjan? That's right. There has been just an exodus into these types of products. They are some of the most risky products in the entire market, and they offer leverage or inverse exposure to specific sectors of the market, major indexes. And as you mentioned, one of the most actively traded products is this one that's designed to triple the daily return of the NASDAQ 100 index. And it's one of the most popular products, especially among individual investors who are saying, I want to go all in on tech. I'm not looking to take my chips off the table. I want triple the exposure to this tech-heavy index. And of course, um, this can lead to some explosive one-day gains and also some big losses for investors. Right. And they're not really meant to be held for a longer term. Sometimes these products are only meant to be held for a day or less. Um, what does that mean for the market's foundation and the rally over the last few weeks? Do you think, Gunjan, that it should be less trusted because it's built on this riskier foundation? You know, investors that I spoke with, data that I looked at for this article, um, whether it was fund flows or, or retail investor activity, showed that many investors are still bullish on tech. You know, I think we have seen this sell-off this year, but investors I spoke to, particularly individual investors, they were saying, I don't think this decade-long rally in tech is over quite yet, though it has been tested recently. You know, and that's why they're looking to these products to, to triple their exposure to tech, basically. Okay, so what's the risk... Uh what are people telling you overall, Gunjan, if this bet is wrong? To what degree is this risky behavior by some retail investors going to affect the overall market structure? You know, over the past decade, we have seen times where investors have pointed to ETF activity or options activity as a source of exacerbating volatility. I think in this case, one of the biggest risks is for investors themselves. I spoke to a 25-year-old individual investor who's worked at Chick-fil-A, who's worked at Starbucks, and he poured $15,000 into TQQ, this triple leveraged bet on the NASDAQ 100 index. You know, the risk for, for investors like these is that 
holding the ETF for long periods of time um, doesn't work out the way that they think they will. You know, investors are turning to these as kind of lottery ticket like bets on on the Nasdaq and tech stocks. Mm -hmm. And you may not win the lottery. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Putting it lightly. Gunjan, thank you so much for being with us today. Talk to you soon. Thank you. We are just two days away from CNBC's Healthy Returns Summit this Wednesday, where some of the sharpest minds in healthcare will discuss the post-pandemic reality. You can find out more by scanning the QR code on the screen or going to cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. Tech Check is back in just a moment. We had held pretty steady here around uh, 45.50 for most of the morning. Then we got a two-year note auction that uh, wasn't all that hot. Uh, We got some uh, squeeze on some yields, and as a result, took a leg lower here now down. 290 on the Dow and back to 4522, John, as we are looking at the highest period of bond volatility going back to 2009 at last few weeks. Wow. Yeah. And one more thing, that is a potentially large tax bill ahead for some of tech's biggest names. Robert Frank joins us with a breakdown of the expected proposal. Robert. Good morning, John. Well, the top 10 tech CEOs would owe over $200 billion in taxes when this plan takes effect. The plan calls for a 20% minimum tax on income and unrealized capital gains. It applies to those worth over $100 million, but most of the revenue would come from billionaires and most of that from the tech founders. From Elon Musk, you take a look at him, he would owe $50 billion. Jeff Bezos would owe $35 billion. They have 10 years to pay it all off, but each annual change in the stock price would also be taxed or credited if it went down. Mark Zuckerberg would owe a tax of $25 billion for 2021, but he's down $40 billion this year. So in the end, he gets an $8 billion credit, leaving him with an IRS balance of $17 billion. So it gets very complicated. Founders of private tech companies may get a break. Illiquid assets won't have to be valued and taxed every year. So if you look at Stripe co-founder and CEO Patrick Collison, he would likely owe $2 billion the first year, but each annual increase in Stripe's valuation may not be taxed until or if it ever goes public. Guys? Uh, D, th- this one, the whole credit thing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when, when the stock goes down, so many ways that this could go south for being able to predict what tax revenues are going to be. Yeah, and that's one of sort of the main criticisms is how complicated it gets. Meantime, guys, I've been looking at shares of Tesla, speaking of another billionaire that may have to be paying more in taxes. Bezos, that is, who still um, has a big part of the company and is executive chairman. That stock, Carl, is up 15 percent over the last one month. It's sort of quietly been outperforming some of the other tech giants over the last month at least, but still on an annual basis over the last 12 months. It's still the underperformer, but it has been picking back up over the last month. Yeah, and green for the year once again as of today uh, and above, uh, basically going green for the first time since January. Uh, Interesting. And by the way, guys, we haven't really touched on Bitcoin a whole lot today. But speaking of going green for the year, as we got back above 48K, and John, we did see some beneficiaries from the likes of Coin on that front. Yeah, uh, great piece by Robert Frank. Also has me thinking, is that going to apply to crypto too? (laughs) I don't know. Um, (laughs) You know, if you're you're holding it... the whole tax implications, Carl, potentially fraught. 
Uh, indeed. And as we said uh, late last week, guys, uh, we're going to work our way. We're going to have to chip away through a, a boatload of data uh, throughout the week as we get through ISM and auto sales and ADP and income and spending uh, leading up to the jobs number on Friday. We're going to see where that and CPI in a couple of days after that leaves the Fed. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.